This is uh, basically theory two, unit 14, part three, ECG complexes. All right. <clears throat> uh, so this is a list of things we're gonna talk about. Let's just get to it. Uh, so again, uh, just to recap what I was saying uh, with the last presentation, the uh, ECG, the electrocardiogram, represents the heart's electrical activity. It doesn't represent contraction, it represents purely electrical activity. When we see electrical activity, we assume there's contraction happening, and that's a reasonable assumption most of the time. Um, uh, when we're looking at the complexes, so for, start, for starters, on the ECG, when you see flat line, that's also referred to as the isoelectric line, uh, which is also the polarized phase where the concentration of potassium is on the inside, sodium is concentrated on the outside, so that's the isoelectric line or polarized phase. Uh, the P wave represents atrial depolarization, and we assume there's atrial contraction that happens, so it's depolarization of both atria. Um, the QRS complex represents ventricular uh, depolarization. Now, why do you suppose we don't see, we're going to see um, the T wave, which represents ventricular repolarization. Why do you suppose we don't see atrial repolarization? Yeah, Matt? Yeah, it's hidden in the QRS. And we think about, look at how small atrial depolarization is. It's a little tiny P wave. And look at how large the T wave is compared to the QRS. So ventricular repolarization compared to the the QRS, it, even if the, there wasn't a QRS there, seeing P wave or the atrial repolarization is so small, it might not even be visible. So another way to look at it is um, from this angle, um, P wave representing atrial depolarization, QRS representing ventricular repolarization. When it comes to the QRS, um, there may be a Q, an R, and an S, uh, or there may not be, but we call it a QRS for simplicity's sake, no matter what. So the Q is the first negative deflection, um, the R is the first positive deflection, and the S is the second negative deflection. But even if there is no Q wave, or let's say there is no S wave, we still call it a QRS for simplicity's sake. Um, so the flat line, what, what's the term for the flat line between uh, ECG complexes? It's called the... IL, isoelectric ISO line, also known as what phase? The polarized phase, yeah. right? And the P wave represents I see lips moving, I hear grumbling, but Matt? Atrial depolarization. The QRS represents ventricular, ventricular depolarization, and the two wave represents ventricular repolarization. And how many phases in the repolarization? One or two. How many phases in repolarization? One or two. 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 Do you remember what the first phase is? There's an efflux of potassium. And what's needed for the second phase? Do you guys have your notes like right in front of you, slides right in front of you? Uh, yeah. Sodium potassium pump, right. And what does the sodium potassium pump need? 
ATP, right? Needs energy, right? Good. Okay, good. So let's look at the, uh, the complexes and intervals. Um, the really, really, really boring part about ECGs uh, is that there are some numbers, some rules you just have to memorize. There's no getting around it. You just have to memorize it. I can talk about it, but you have to look at it. You have to think about it. You have to chant it while you're walking down Big Bay Point um, and look like a crazy person. Uh, you just got to memorize it. There's no two ways around it. So let's start with um, the PR interval. A normal PR interval, um, first of all, I should, I should backtrack a bit. Let's talk about the graph paper. You guys covered this last year, right? Yeah. Was it fun? Oh, so it wasn't fun, <laughs> is what you're saying. Uh, okay, so these uh, these five squares are five millimeters, and then there's one millimeter squares, right? Okay, good. I talked about this last year, eh? Wow, that's good. Um, each millimeter is equivalent to 0 0.04 second, or 40 milliseconds okay so a normal PR interval is 0.12 to 0 0.20 second how many small squares is 0 0.12 this is really painfully basic math but three three small squares good 0 0.04 times 3.12 right so a PR interval from the beginning of the P wave to the beginning of the QRS should be 0 0.12 to 0 0.20 second. That's what it should be. If it's longer than that, it means that there's some sort of conduction delay at the AV node or the tissue surrounding the AV node. They call that the perinodal tissue, right? So it could be in the bundle of Hiss uh, or the AV node. So you can get heart blocks when there's delays in that conduction. So that would be an important piece to look at when you're interpreting the ECG. Um, next is the QRS. The QRS duration is typically 0 0.08 to 0 0.1 second, or less than three small squares, less than 0.12. Now this one um, is really important. Um, and no matter how much I emphasize it, at least a third of the class always get that question wrong on the first test. I don't know why. I don't know how many times I have to say it, but um, I want you guys to shock me and for everyone to get the <laughs> that question right uh, on the exam. I think it's a multiple choice for this exam, but next year it'll be a short answer, so I'll go over it again. So a normal QS is less than 0.12 second. If the QRS was 0.12 second or greater, it would be considered wide. And that's critically important to your interpretation of the ECT. If you have a wide QRS, um, a wide QRS is caused by typically one of three things, but two main things. So here's the SA node, AV node, bundle of his, bundle branches. Here's the same thing. 
Why QRS can result from an ectopic focus firing from the ventricles? And the QRS is wide when you get a focus down the ventricles because it originates typically in the Purkinje fiber or the muscle, and it takes longer for the cells to depolarize from muscle cell to muscle cell, as opposed to having the benefit of going rapidly down the bundle of his and down both bundle branches simultaneously. So this would give you a YQRS. And we see that in ventricular tachycardia. We see that in ventric premature ventricular complexes. <coughs> the other thing that might cause a YQRS is that the impulse comes from the SA node or, or the AV node or AV junction, goes down here, but when it gets down one of the bundle branches, it encounters a block, say a left bundle branch block or right bundle branch block, and that'll give you a YQRS. But typically, um, when you get this sort of thing, you'll see a P wave, oops, P wave, followed by a YQRS. Here, you just see a flat line, followed by a YQRS. The only way for a QRS to be narrow, so less than 0.12, is if the impulse travels down both bundle branches simultaneously. So it can come from the bundle of his, or it can come from the SA node, or can, pump, can, come, can come from the AV junction. But the only way for a QRS to be narrow, less than 0.12 second, is if it travels down both bundle branches simultaneously. The only way for a QRS to be narrow is if it travels down both bundle branches simultaneously. The only way a QRS can be narrow is if it travels down both bundle branches simultaneously. The only way a QRS can be narrow is if it travels down both branches simultaneously. God damn it. <laughs> okay. The ST segment. Uh, so the ST segment uh, starts at the end of the QRS and ends at the start of the T wave. And the ST segment, um, we're not going to uh, worry about too much right now. Um, the ST segment is, if it's above the baseline or below the baseline, is not relevant to us when we're just interpreting cardiac rhythms. It becomes relevant when we're looking at 12 lead ECGs. So when we're just hooking the patient up to the monitor, using lead two or lead three or lead one or whatever, the only thing we're interested is in is what's the rhythm, what's the rate? Rhythm, rate, rate, rhythm, whatever you like. Um, if if we're looking at things like um, cardiac ischemia or myocardial infarction, then we start looking at ST segments. <coughs> but I just wanted to point out that that's what the ST segment is. The, uh, the J point is a point at which the QRS ends and the uh, ST segment begins. That's called the J point. And in MIs, the J point's elevated above the baseline. And uh, then there's a QT interval. QT interval is between um, the beginning of the QRS and the end of the T wave. And there's no particular number for the QT interval uh, unless we're talking about something called the QTC, which is a calculated QT interval. Now, I can tell you um, a lot of medics, probably most medics, never look at the QT interval. Uh, but that's a serious mistake, serious oversight. 
um, because if someone has a prolonged QT, they're at high risk of sudden cardiac death. If you, um, if you do a Google search for long QT syndrome, you'll see hundreds of support groups, parents who've lost their kids to long QT syndrome, uh, because uh, people with long QT are at risk of um, a ventricular tachycardia, lethal form of ventricular tachycardia called a torsade de pointe, which means twisting of the points. And um, if you um, do a 12 ECG on a patient who's had no cardiac history and you see a long QT, you may have just saved that patient's life. Even though the patient looked perfectly fine, was perfectly fine during transport, if you identify a long QT that no one else has identified, you probably just save that person from a cardiac arrest because they're essentially a ticking time bomb. They're fine until the, they're dead. Right? And uh, lots and lots of people die every year from long QT. And some people are born with long QT. Uh, some drugs affect QT intervals. Um, some of the uh, antihistamine and anti-inflammatory drugs that we take for allergies if you take them in too high a dose or for long periods of time, they prolong the QT, uh, and they can be lethal. Now, I wouldn't worry about taking allergy medications in regular doses, but uh, there are probably close to 100 drugs that can prolong QT if, uh, if they're not taken properly. Um, so how do we measure QT? So um, uh, there are two basic ways. Um, if you look at uh, a normal QT, a normal QT should be less than half of the RDR interval. So if you sort of draw a loop, half a loop between two R waves and draw a dotted line down the middle, the T wave should fall short of that midline. That's a normal QT. This is a very crude way of determining whether QT is prolonged or not. Um, on the other hand, if the QT is greater than half of the R to R, like this, that's a long QT. So that patient's a ticking time bomb. That patient's at high risk of sudden cardiac death. And um, what you're gonna encounter every once in a while in your career is uh, someone who's had a near-death event that seems like something entirely non-cardiac. I'll give an example. Um, I had a guy who was 23 and he had a seizure and uh, we got to his house and he was sitting in the carport and his mom was with him and uh, before we could even talk to him he said I'm not going to the hospital and his mom was saying you know can you just go to the hospital please and he said I'm not going to the hospital so I said I said okay well can we uh, uh, can we get some information about what happened and you know put you on our monitor and do an assessment and then we can talk about whether you want to go or not go to the hospital so uh, the story was he had a seizure that lasted about two minutes his mom saw it and um, by the time we got there he was pretty much fully recovered normally after a seizure people go through a post-dictal period uh, post-seizure period where they're really confused and groggy um, I'm not sure how long uh, after the seizure we got called. It might have been 15, 20 minutes. He should technically have been still pretty groggy, but he was pretty alert. Um, 
So, you know, I asked, have you ever had a seizure before? And he said he had one about two years earlier. It's the only two seizures he's ever had. And I said, uh, did you go to the hospital at that time? Yes. Did you see a specialist about it? Yes. Um, can you tell me what the specialist said? So he said he went to a neurologist. They did extensive testing. They couldn't find any evidence that he had epilepsy or anything like that. But epilepsy, most epilepsies are idiopathic, meaning they have no idea what part of the brain is causing a seizure or why they're having seizures. Uh, we see seizures a lot of times in people who've had head trauma in the past or strokes. Uh, but most um, epilepsy is idiopathic. Now, a little unusual that his first seizure would happen at about the age of 20 or 21 or so, and his second one at 23. So, you know, he said to me sort of sarcastically, you know, I've been assessed by a neurologist, and he said, I'm perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with my brain. So we take a set of vital signs on him, and we put him on the monitor. And the first thing I noticed is his heart rate's 150. Um, and he's at rest, right? So 20 minutes post-seizure is at rest, heart rate's 150, that's really high, that's unusual. So I said to him, you know, your heart rate's 150. And he said, yeah, you guys are scaring me. <laughs> so I said, okay, well, uh, even if that's the case, you know, it's very unusual for your heart rate to be that high. 110, 120 would be understandable if you were, you know, a little nervous around us, but um, 150 is a little unusual. That concerns me. So, you know, all the while I'm trying to talk him into going to the hospital to get checked out for, you know, just to be, have some peace of mind. Um, and uh, I look at his uh, ECG, I ran a strip, and the QT looked a little long to me. I wasn't sure. So uh, uh, I asked him if he had any objection. We did a 12 lead ECG. I did a 12 lead ECG on him. And uh, what happens with the QT interval is the reason there's no specific number for it is because it changes with heart rate. Um, it gets a little shorter with fast heart rates and a little wider with slower heart rates, only by milliseconds. And um, so there's a formula, a mathematical formula to do what they call a uh, um, QTC interval, a QTC or QT calculated, so the C stands for calculated. So there's a, a formula that involves the square root, and anytime I see square root, my math brain just automatically goes into sleep mode. So um, the good news is that when you do a 12 lead ECG, the ECG machine will do the analysis and will tell you specifically what the QTC is. And the QTC should be less than 500 milliseconds. Olympic athletes get disqualified when their QTC is greater than 480, 480. They get disqualified. You imagine training your entire life and then getting disqualified if your QTC is greater than 480. And that's because they're at high risk of sudden death. And typically they die suddenly in the middle of exertion. So it should be less than 500 milliseconds. His was 565. So when you have a near-death event, um, like torsade de pointe is uh, a polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. Um, when you go into a polymorphic ventricular tachycardia, typically uh, you lose consciousness, uh, you're pulseless, you go cyanosed, which his mom said he was very blue in the face, um, and then your heart sometimes, with a torsade de pointe, just spontaneously starts to beat again. Your SA node just kicks in, boom. 
So some people who have torsad, who have QT, have syncopal episodes. They have fainting episodes, and then they appear to be fine. And no one knows why they're having fainting episodes unless they do a 12-lead ECG and find out their QT is prolonged, their QTC is prolonged. So when you die, which is essentially what happens with a torsad to point, typically, it may be a brief death. Um, when your brain is deprived of oxygen, uh, it's not uncommon to have seizure-like activities. If you're in the back of the ambulance and someone goes into cardiac arrest, whatever the terminal rhythm is, ventricular fibrillation, ventricular tachycardia, torsade de point, um, typically they're lying in a stretcher and the eyes will roll to the back of the head and then they start shaking like a seizure. And then a few seconds later, they stop moving because they've been dead long enough that the seizure stops. Um, in his case, he probably had a hypoxic seizure and then his SA node just kicked in spontaneously, which is not uncommon for torsade de point. So he didn't really have a true neurological seizure. He probably had a near-death event. Um, so we had a supervisor there with us. We spent an hour and a half trying to convince him to go to the hospital. We couldn't do it. I called my base hospital physician, had a doctor on the phone with him, still couldn't convince him to go to the hospital. His mom was in tears trying to get him to the hospital, couldn't get him to the hospital. So the 12-lead ECG, I ran an extra copy of it. I wrote some notes on it. I gave it to mom. I said, today or tomorrow, I would take this to your family doc, if you can, and just show it to him, tell him what happened. Um, here's the number for our service if the, your family doc wants to get a hold of me. Uh, but he needs to get assessed by his family physician, if not a cardiologist. So, never heard back from him. Have no idea if the guy's still alive. Uh, never heard if he came to the hospital. Actually, that the end of that shift, um, I spoke to the nurses. They said no one had come in by that description. So, I don't know if this guy is dead or alive. But he's a ticking time bomb because he had a long QT. Ticking time bomb. And um, sometimes it, they can correct the QT uh, by taking him off whatever medication he's on, or if he's doing illicit drugs and that's causing a long QT, discontinue that. Uh, or if he's got an electrolyte imbalance, they correct the electrolyte imbalance and that stops the long QT. But if he's born with it, uh, if it's congenital, the only thing that might keep him alive is an implantable cardioverter defibrillator. It's like a pacemaker. Uh, but it, in addition to pacing, if the patient's heart rate gets too slow, if they go into um, a lethal arrhythmia, like a VF, a VT, or a de point, it shocks them from internally. Right? So. Yeah. Night watch? Yeah. You had a patient there. It was going <laughs> off, yeah. It was firing, yeah. So he was probably having a lethal arrhythmia. Yeah. And it was firing. Yeah. yeah. That happens. Yeah, and that's the U.S., right? Because they can't afford the co-payments yeah. or the payments. Yeah, here would be a no-brainer. We just take them to the hospital. What was your guy's reason for not going? He wouldn't give us a reason, and right. and that's a great question because oftentimes you can get to you know is there something about the hospital that they don't like? Like is it, is it this particular hospital? Yeah. Maybe, you know, I've had patients who said, I'm not going to go there because my dad died there, or 
I'm not going to go there because I've been there before and their staff are, in their opinion, incompetent um, or I don't like hospitals or I don't like needles. There's all kinds of reasons and oftentimes if you can drill down to the reason, sometimes you can reason with them to uh, persuade them to go to the hospital. But uh, we just could find no reason. Even I even asked his mom, like, is there some reason he, why is he so adamant he doesn't want to go to the hospital? He just didn't. I think um, he, his attitude was, I don't care if I live or die. You know, and so just leave me alone. Uh, although he didn't s express any suicide ideation, I think his his point of view was, "Screw you! I'll do whatever the hell I want to do." You know, kind of thing. So, anyway, don't know what happened to him. Um, let's finish this off, and then we'll wrap it up. So, uh, I think last year, or maybe in your uh, cardiac AMP class, you might have talked about the action potential. This is uh, basically the electrical representation of what happens at a cell level as opposed to the ECG, which represents what happens throughout the entire heart. So in a resting cell, this is what an action potential looks like. And um, typically a resting muscle cell sits at about negative 85 millivolts. And then when a wave of depolarization hits it, it rapidly undergoes depolarization, so that's phase zero. And then uh, it takes a little dip in phase one, which is early repolarization. And then phase two is a plateau phase, and I'll talk about these in a second. And then phase three is repolarization. It happens in two stages. Initially an efflux of potassium, and then the sodium potassium pump kicks in to pump potassium back into the cell, sodium back out of the cell. And then we're back to the polarized phase, the resting phase of phase four. So um, when you compare this to what's happening with ECG now, this is a really long QT, and that's, that's not a normal QT. I've just drawn it that way to reflect what's happening here. So what's happening in um, phase zero, right, is there's, there's the fast sodium channel opens up. So there's a rapid influx of sodium. Um, and there's also an influx of calcium. Sorry, it's difficult to draw in this. And then uh, phase one, there may be a slight efflux of potassium. Um, but what's happening in phase two is there's a continuous influx of calcium. And also, of course, calcium is being released from the sarcoplasmic reticulum. And this is what I was talking about. When the heart, you see the QRS, the heart depolarizes and contracts and holds it for like a millisecond and then releases. Twists, squeeze, squeeze out all the blood and then releases and repolarizes. Um, squeeze and hold, right? So that's what's happening in phase two. And then phase three we talked about happens in two phases. Um, so phase four is, um, the polarized phase. Uh, phase zero is um, depolarization. Phase one is early repolarization. Phase two is plateau. And phase three is repolarization. Got that Nikita song stuck in my head now. Nikita by Elton John, oh. stuck in my head, because she's not here. 
This is the action potential of a pacemaker cell. It's different, right? So a pacemaker cell, um, the stage between repolarization and depolarization is continuous. So there's, instead of being a flat line, like a muscle cell, pacemaker cells dip down and dip upwards. So sometimes in textbooks you'll, you'll hear phase four described as phase four depolarization. Phase four is normally a polarized state, right, in a muscle cell. But sometimes you'll hear phase four described as phase four uh, depolarization. Phase four is really actually, in a pacemaker cell, pacemaker, uh, phase four is kind of repolarization, depolarization. So there's a continuous movement of electrolytes across the cell membrane. And once um, the cell reaches a threshold, and the threshold in pacemaker cells is typically negative 60 millivolts, it rapidly undergoes depolarization. So some drugs that we give caught the cell to reach threshold quicker or slower. As an example, we talked about salbutamol for asthmatics, right? Salbutamol is, uh, what, what uh, receptor does it stimulate primarily to give you bronchodilation? Beta 2 receptor is good. And what, is its, what receptor does it stimulate to give you an increased heart rate? Beta 1 receptors, right. So, so um, with salbutamol, which is a sympathomimetic, right, it's a sympathetic drug, um, you reach threshold more rapidly. So as a consequence, um, when you give repeated doses of salbutamol for someone who's having an asthma attack, their heart rate typically goes up as well. It's not a biggie, but just know that that's what happens. Um, and then, um, so the pacemaker cell action potential looks like this dotted line. It's a little different from a resting muscle cell. All right, quiz and then break. Uh, why is the impulse delayed at the AV node? How many say B? B. B, okay. Allows the atrium to contract, fill the ventricles. Excellent. Do you guys just know the answer as soon as you look at it and you're just waiting for me to do something or? I have to read through those. Okay. Question 11, what does a P wave represent? D, how many say D? D, good. Question 12, what does a QRS represent? Ventricular depolarization A, yep, good. Uh, okay, I think we will take a break here. I thought there was.